Today, we welcome Reverend Joe Novitson to the podcast. Uh, Pastor Joe, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you, John. Good to, good to see you, uh, especially in light of all that's that's going on in our, our culture. I appreciate you making the time. Um, Re- Reverend Novinson was the longtime senior pastor at Lookout Mountain Prez in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, and has recently transitioned to serve as the pastor of senior adults. Is that correct on the title? <laughs> that's correct. Right. That is right. I love it. I just love it. <laughs> and tell me, how long have you been there in total now? Uh, it'll be 24 years this coming April. All right. It's the longest I've been anywhere in my life, even longer than my childhood home. Oh, wow. Okay. And you were at South Carolina for a little while as well in South I was Carolina? In Le- yes, Lexington, South Carolina for um, just 15 years. Thought I'd never leave. Thought I'd stay there the rest of my ministry. And I was in Augusta for just under five. All right. So um, I'm not doing math too well this morning. How many total <laughs> years of, of, of uh, pastoral ministry have you done now? I was ordained in um, 1980. Okay. Uh, let me correct that. 78. 78. Okay. All right. All right. Well, good deal. Well, um, our listeners know that this is uh, season five of the podcast, and the theme of season five is ministry relationships. Uh, we're looking mm. at marriages in ministry, singles in ministry, relationships among pastoral mm. staff, and relationships with parents. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground with you on, on the, the podcast mm. today. But I really, I wanted to start us off by asking about your sabbatical. Um, because you, you had one recently, right? Is that just this past year? Is that correct? That, that's correct. And this was my third, for which okay. I'm exceedingly thankful. Hmm, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I've had one sabbatical uh, in my life. And I know as I was sharing right before recording, um, I remember talking to Richie Sessions and just kind of getting some advice from him on, okay, this is a significant gift that the church is giving and you hmm. know them trying to care for me and I don't want to waste it. I want to use this well. And so maybe some advice on, on that, on just kind of using a sabbatical well, but then also kind of asking you, what are some things that the Lord has taught you while on sabbatical? Let me talk about um, how each one was somewhat different, but all, even as you said, relationally focused. On my first one, I was beginning to discover some of the blind spots in my understanding of myself, my wife. And it was a a very arresting time. I began to see that I uh, was more frightened man than I thought I was. I was motivated more by functioning on my gift package than out of my dependence on Christ. So to make a long story short, that sabbatical, I wrote my heroes. I wrote R.C. Sproul. I wrote John Gerstner. I wrote James Montgomery Boyce. I wrote Stuart Briscoe, um, I wrote uh, Gordon McDonald, I wrote others, but, and I said, I'd like to meet with you and your wife at your favorite restaurant, and I'd like to um, take you out. I won't write a book or quote you in public if you don't want me to, but I don't want to take a class. I want to ask about what you're like in private. What do you do with your fears? How do you deal with repentance? How do you protect your marriage? And I sent them a list of questions, and, um, and every one of them wrote back and said, we'd love to do this. And I would take one wow. of my family members with me, and I'd travel to wherever um, they were, and we would enjoy the um, place where we were. 
and then for that lunch, I'd go and be with these people. And it was priceless. It was just priceless to be all alone over lunch with RC Investor Sproul. I mean, it just was incredible. Yeah, I, I kind of wish you would have recorded all of that. <laughs> and some of the things that they said, they really were life-changing. To this day, I can quote some of the things that they said to me word for word. One, because I was realizing how um, I hadn't deepened in my own repentance and how they embodied and expressed ways that I could and should. And it is as memorable. Here's one. This is just one. I quote this often. Gordon MacDonald said to me, <laughs> um, he said, I believe the inner man of the modern American evangelical male is coming due on them like a balloon note on a bad loan screaming for payment. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. That's a loaded quote right there. <laughs> then he said, they will only have one choice between two alternatives, soul-drenching repentance or horrid sin. Mm. He had just fallen in adultery, and he looked at me and he said, you know which one I chose. I don't know you, but I think you still have a choice. Wow. And I almost dropped my face into my Caesar salad crying. Mm. But that way of spending a sabbatical, writing your heroes and saying, I want to be alone. And incidentally, he gave me permission to quote him. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was, and, and with their wives, oh, that was, that was worth its weight in gold. Wow. The second one, I was beginning to look at um, the last half of my ministry. And so I wanted to talk with people about how they finished well. So I contacted 150 people, either by letter, telephone, or personal meeting. And I asked them questions about how they saw finishing and how they used the last section of their ministry. Again, that was earth-shaking to me. Um, I met with people all over the country and traveled again to be with them. And then this last one, I've spent, because of my eldest son and my grandchildren are in Scotland, I have three grandsons who uh, I don't have as close a relationship as I would like. So we rented an Airbnb uh, a block and a half from their school. Hmm. And I basically went to anything they would let me go to. Um, I just, I, want, I didn't want to be a grandfather in the mist. Hmm. I wanted to walk with them and talk with them. And I took each of them out for, uh, well, I wrote them a letter. I gave my testimony in the letter. And I told them I dedicate this portion of my life to helping them begin a relationship with Christ if they had not yet done so or helping them deepen in their relationship if they had. And I gave them each a leather-bound study Bible. And I said, I want to be worthy of the name grandfather to you. Mm. So they picked the restaurant, and we went out, and we talked very heart-to-heart -heart with each of them. And um, so it was very family-oriented, my last sabbatical. And I, I loved it. To be in Scotland and not travel was a little hard, but... <laughs> I, I decided I'm, I'm here for my grandsons, so I gave my time to them.
Wow. Okay. I kind of just want to throw out my notes and just focus on <laughs> all your, sab- <laughs> your sabbaticals now. Um, wow. So, so how long were you over there in, in Scotland? I, we went for just, uh, just under five weeks. Okay. And um, I, was, I went out on all of their um, trips around that they would just do at school. I was the chaperone. I went to all their concerts, their <laughs> ball games, their practices. Um, it, it was it was a delight. It was really a delight, and um, and went to my son's classes. He teaches at the University of Edinburgh okay. in New Testament. And every time I say that, I feel like I'm lying, but it's the truth. <laughs> and um, it was fun to to just sort of watch over his shoulder and see him. I keep saying to myself, I actually changed that kid's diapers, and <laughs> now it's a New Testament scholar. <laughs> anyway. Wow, that's awesome. Well, look, before we leave this this topic of sabbatical again, I'd I'd love to to camp out here, but thinking more of kind of you know weekly Sabbaths just in our oh. lives and kind of rhythms in in ministry oh. kind of along these lines. Can can you give some advice on just some of the practices in your you know as you look over all of your years in ministry, some of those kind of weekly Sabbath practices that were, were helpful or just kind of the practical rhythms that were helpful and life-giving to you? Anything come to mind? Oh, boy, a whole lot. Um, I've been reading a book um, called Subversive Sabbath. Have you heard of it? I don't By think AJ I have. He made some things that, I mean, I'm, I'm 67. Uh, you would think that my doctrine of Sabbath would be pretty developed, but he has just stood me on my head. Here's some things that have helped me tremendously that that I that I'd never seen. Um, maybe you have. And if I break any one of the Ten Commandments, at least nine of them, if I preach idolatry, if I commit adultery, if I get caught in lying or because of plagiarism, or if I steal, obviously if I murder, I'll lose my job. But if I break one of them consistently, I'll get a raise. Mm. Mm. If I break Sabbath, I'll actually be promoted. Wow. That is how deep he points out our blindness to the need for this um, has become. The second thing he said, he said many things, but this one also stuck with me. Um, Adam and Eve were made on the sixth day, and the Lord does not tell us what time of day they were made, whatever your view of the six days are, Mm -hmm. whether it was morning or evening or afternoon. But what that means is the first day after they slept and opened their eyes, they Sabbathed. I never saw it before. Mm. The first day, the first time that they entered the world after being created, after they were given their command to work and take care of the whole earth and fill it with God lovers, God said, don't do anything. I want you to look at my work. Wow. I want you to savor what I've done. I think it's good. What do you think? It's the gospel right there. You begin by savoring my work. And then the next day, you go to work. And I began to see God made the rhythm. You move from rest to work. You don't move from work to rest. You start from the posture 
of gospel-rich Sabbath and work your way toward labor so that the energy goes up because of being immersed in what God's done. I could go on, but mm. that book has been really a, a game changer for me. That. And to fight for Sabbath has become more a part of my life. I'm ashamed to say I'm 67, been following Jesus since 1968. And I feel like I've still been radically, horribly disobedient in the area of rest. And I wish that I could do it over again. Mm. Um, because I have moved more from freneticism and overwork. And that is not what God designed a human to be. Mm. And it, has, it, it grieves me. Um, Anyone who knows me would tell you I'm not good at resting. I've had staff tell me, you're hurting us. You're actually hurting us. Because if you were, when, as I was, lead pastor, and you're not doing it, why do you think we would? Hmm. And I needed to hear that, and I, I needed to, to pull back. Um, so I think I would say... Repent early, repent often, and learn to live from rest to work and don't do as I did. Um, mm. I'm trying now to be better at it, but um, I'd be dishonest if I were to tell you I'm good at it. Well, you're, you're definitely not alone uh, with, with that. I mean, so many of us would, would echo just the, the frenetic pace, the, the functioning out of, I mean, to, to reference earlier what you said, just kind of striving to, to live and minister out of our gifts. And, um, you know, as I'm growing older, I'm just realizing the amount of work you have to put in and discipline to actually rest well, that it just seems kind of contradictory, but, but um, echoing what, what you, what you said. Actually, I think it's actually not. If the first command we've been given is to work, it's interesting to me, you can overwork by mistake. Hmm. In other words, you can sit down to start to do something and you're working really hard and you're studying and then you look at your watch and go, Oh my goodness. Hours have passed. You didn't even know. I don't believe that's ever happened to a human when it comes to rest. Mm. I don't believe they've ever gone, oh, goodness, I've Sabbath for two hours. I didn't. <laughs> because we've been made in the image of a God who has called us to work. And our tendency towards self-righteousness requires that we be very deliberate to rest because it, it punches our self-righteousness right in the face. It makes the primacy of God's work over our work really deliberate. And to do it, you have to say no to yourself. Mm -hmm. I am not as important. It's like standing up in an AA meeting and saying, hi, my name is Joe, and I am not the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so Sabbath is punching self-righteousness right in the face on a regular basis. And it's rightful to do that in order to break down the dependency on self. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it, it's proof of how, how self-oriented we are. Was it Augustine who said all of sin is in curvitas and say, everything curves in on the self instead of in curvitas on deum, out to God? It, it really shows you that the curve is always toward the self. And when Sabbath starts to become, oh boy, it's proving it's becoming in curvitas on dam. Mm. More to God. 
Wow. That's such a good word. And before I move us on, what's the name of the book and the author again that you... It's referred? called Subversive Sabbath by AJ. I think you pronounce his name Swoboda. Okay. I think I'm saying it right. Um, but it was very arresting. His, um, his conclusions and um, it, it just, it's been one of the most helpful he quotes obvious that's uh, sort of the substantive work by Abraham Herschel, who's a Jewish rabbi, which also a very helpful book on Sabbath. But but Swoboda, from a Christocentric, gospel-rich direction, really aims um, strongly. Like few few authors I've yet read. Hmm. I'll definitely be picking that up for sure. Um, as we kind of transition more into the ministry relationship side of things, I'd love for you to give some some advice to, to youth workers specifically in reference to their interaction with the senior pastor. I mean, of course, this is this podcast is the local youth worker. It can be broader application, not just dealing with youth workers. It can be other pastoral staff, but um, maybe, you know, things they should do and shouldn't do in order to foster a better relationship uh, and among that pastoral staff. So what, what's just, what's some advice there, some thoughts you have as you think of interacting with uh, youth workers over your tenure as a senior pastor? I think um, the verse that uh, comes to mind that I wrote down and everyone probably has in their soul, we loved you so deeply that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become so dear to us. First Thessalonians 2.8. At first, that the paradigm with which to enter ministry, I think, needs to be relationally dominant, um, theologically accurate, relationally dominant, relationally rich, relationally robust, that to give yourself to the senior pastor. Mm. And like, for example, I would guess it would be very uncommon for anyone to ever walk into his office and say, what can I do for you? Hmm. Give me not just my job description for the youth of the church. I got that. The session gave me that. What can I do for you? And I'm guessing that probably most people in any leadership have never had that question asked to them. Like if you go to a boss of a, company or you go to a mayor everybody comes to leaders wanting but for a youth pastor to arrive and say make me your servant um what what might i do while i'm here that lifts your load that quiets your heart that steadies your mind that strengthens your inner man and uh i would be honored i realize we're not friends yet um, and that may not be something that you want, uh, and I, I'll have to live with that. Mm -hmm. But I am at your service, and um, I want to go to the back of the line and go to the back of your line. I want to do what you need for as long as God has me here. I don't think many youth pastors will think that way, and I don't think mm -hmm. many pastors will hear that from any other staff member because we're task oriented and we're not relationship oriented. And frankly, I think it's killing us because it's not the kingdom that we're in. Mm. I'm not saying tasks are not important. I'm not, but I'm saying a relationless task accomplished is defamation of character for our King. 
Mm. And um, we can't do the things he's called us to without giving ourselves relationally. Um, ask some more questions about that if you want. But well, yeah, definitely. No, absolutely. I mean, you just saying being task oriented. I mean, we're just getting the to-do list, the checklist, all of that. And you think of, I mean, just relating that to our relationship with our, our God. I mean, that's not how he works. You know, that's, yeah. he invites us into a relationship. And so the implications of that in pastoral ministry is, is significant, but, but to kind of dig down into that a little bit more, just put it, you know, kind of throwing that back on you, just say a youth pastor did walk into your office and said, what can I do for you? What would be some of the kind of top of the the list uh, things that you would say? Uh, how would you reply? What, what would you say? Well, here's what you can you can start doing. How would you answer that? I would say I'd, I'd like to be your friend. Hmm. Um, I think friends are one of the best things that God has given us um, on earth. Uh, I think that pastors, uh, youth pastor, any pastor tend to be among the most lonely people in the church. And Amen. I, I would say, um, let's begin a friendship. And when Jesus made that statement, I no longer call you servants, but friends, because friends do not know everything, or servants do not know everything. In fact, I've been struck as I've been studying friendship, even in Hebrew, the word for giving counsel or yielding information and the word for friend are almost interchangeable in the Hebrew, that you're saying things that, are very dear to you, close to you. Very frankly, many pastors never exchange that with staff, and staff don't receive it from pastors. And I'd want to say, let's break that. Um, I would like to be your friend. Because I think ministry runs on the oil of love and friendship. And it, it greases the skids so that when crises hit, we really know one another. We really love each other. We really trust each other. Is it more risky because we're sinners? Yeah, you bet it is. Hmm. But is it more right? Yes, it is more right. Is it worth the risk? Yeah, or quit. Um, there's not another way to do it. This is Christ's way. If all you're going to do is just check a box, uh, leave ministry, go get a job. <laughs> um, but if you're going to do it the king's way, you have to risk and get to know people. Um, I can remember being told in seminary, never give personal illustrations about your weaknesses. And I want to say, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> uh, are you, you know, are you kidding me? Um, the Bible just unveils the personal struggles of one person after another. If that's the model of the inerrant, infallible text that I've been given, how can I not preach or relate or do ministry that way? And yet I, I literally received counsel sort of don't ever let them know your your weaknesses and i just went i i can't live that way so i would say i'd want to be the friend to the youth pastor and that would mean spending time together uh he and me and he and his wife and me and and my wife and um learning what the struggles are praying bearing each other's burdens can somebody be risking a lot there yes but it, it's what we're supposed to do. Um, and if he's not given to that, I would become his servant. Mm. What I would mean by that would be, um, he may not want me near, but he cannot stop my prayer. He cannot stop me doing loving service. 
And so I would pray, love, serve, pray, love, serve, pray, love, serve, and ask if I could descend periodically into a deeper relationship. If he said no, I wouldn't give up. I would continue to pray, love, serve, pray, love, serve. Things like his birthday, his anniversaries. Um, when I could see he was weary, I'd leave him notes. I can remember one time in my ministry, we, we both know Carl Calberkamp. Mm -hmm. I, I speak of this often because it, it was a game changer for me. I was weeping in my office at night. I thought I was the only person in the church. And it was not just sniffle weeping. It was my chest heaving. Mm. And I all of a sudden hear a knock on the door. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not alone. <laughs> and I said, come in. And it was Carl Calverkamp. And he said, are you all right? And I said, no. <laughs> and he just said, wait just a minute. And he went and he got the Trinity Psalmody. And he came back and put his hand on my head and sang to me the scripture. And when he finished the first one, I literally looked at him and said, are you an angel? Are you going to spread wings and fly out of this room? Because no one has ever done for me what you just did. And he said, I'm not an angel, and let me sing another one. <laughs> That's what I call friendship. And he was my associate. And uh, that moment changed the way I do ministry. Um, I can't tell you how important that was. I sing to people now all the time when I visit them. But that's an example of what I'm talking about. I hope I'm answering your question. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is great. And and kind of again digging into that a little bit more, the importance of friendship, but then contrasting that with loneliness, as as you said. But uh, why do you think that the ministry can be such a lonely place? I mean, I know there are all sorts of answers out there and there are so many ways to answer this question, but I'm just curious, kind of your perspective on this. Why is loneliness such a commonality among uh, pastors in the church. Boy, that's that is a a deep one. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll answer quickly. I think that um, our culture is increasingly anti-relational. Um, you know, one in every two homes is a single parent home. One out of every four women under 21 have been sexually abused by someone they know. Mm. Is it one out of every five to six men? Mm -hmm. I mean, those are just a few statistics. We have become an anti-relational culture, um, anti-communal. Um, and it's, it's deep. It goes back to our homes. And it's, it's really damaging and why is it damaging? The second is because we were made in the image of a relational being. Um, we were made in the image of a God who said it's not good to be alone because he's never been alone. He's always loved inside of himself. And this deep reality that's it's deeper than our DNA. It's down to the Imago Dei, it's image of God, um, is is very profound and we've grown up in a culture that is averse to it or is repelled by it because of the impact of sin 
but the inner man is screaming for relational connection because we've been made in the image of a God who is triune and, and is always loving. Um, I mean, you know, don't miss that he made one of the big 10 commandments. Don't mess with my name. Hmm. He has 40 of them. Uh, most of them have to do with him in relationship to creation. You know, um, Yahweh, Yahweh Rofa or, or, or Jehovah Sinekenu or, but there, it implies there's somebody sick who needs to be healed or somebody unrighteous who needs righteousness. But what did he call himself before he made anything? I mean, don't miss this. It's, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. Nobody picked those names for him. That means before there was a parent, before there was a son, before there was a family, God called himself familial names. So how important do you reckon it'll be if he ever externalizes from himself and hangs these concepts in creation? Hmm. And how damaging do you think it'll be if fathers and sons and parents and children don't relate with a rich, robust kind of interchange that mimics the Trinity? It'll be devastating. And that's what's happening. And so it's created blindness and uh, undervalue, yet the image in us is screaming to reconnect with that kind of closeness. And so it goes out in shockwaves from the damaged relationships. Um, then I think we reward people for being good task doers, but it's not as it's not as easy to get involved in the messiness of another person's life. Mm. It's expensive. It's dangerous. They'll hurt you. C.S. Lewis's great quote about the only place where it's safe not to love, because love always involves risk, is hell. Mm. There's no love. There is risk. It is not safe um, because we're fallen. But it is so holy to enter into the close relationship with other people. So there's, and we end up running on our gift package. Mm -hmm. And again, um, I remember Dr. Clowney shockingly um, reminding us that when Moses struck the rock twice, the people still got water. But God was ticked <laughs> with Moses. We mistake because God uses our words and our ministry and people get filled that we've done what we ought to do. Oh, no, no. We better be relating intimately with deep repentance and faith with God. He may feed people, but we may be bereft of the kind of closeness with him and with one another, that he commands and requires. And we mistake because he's still giving what he wants to give to people. He can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. He always has. But we mistake his blessing for really understanding these things, and we don't. So I, I think we're beguiled by the good that he brings to other people, saying, well, I'm I'm, I'm who he wants me to be. I'm not necessarily. No. I love how he said, I think Jesus saved his most profound and shocking language 
for not making other people stumble. Hmm. One time the apostles asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If you remember, he used to get mad when they talked like that. Mm -hmm. When James and John came with their mom, I want my boys to sit on your right and your left. <laughs> and he goes, woman, can they drink of the cup of which I drink? You can hear in his voice. But you don't understand what you're asking. But one time they asked, who's the greatest? He said, all right, I'll tell you. And then he started talking about cutting off hands and ripping out eyes and cutting off feet. And it's all an image of repentance. You know, what he's really saying is, if you want other people to not stumble, you be the biggest, fastest, deepest repenter anybody's ever seen. You deal with what's wrong with you. And if you don't know how to relate to people, fix it. Mm. If you don't know how to be vulnerably dealing with the sin that's in you, you fix that if you want to keep students, children from stumbling. It's your repentance that those students need more than anything else. And that takes you to Robert Murray McShane's greatest, the greatest gift I can give my congregation is my holiness. Mm. He is dead on. That is, that is the truth. Mm. Well, this is, this is excellent. This is so good. Before I move us on to the next question, I know you, you kind of led this one with being relationally dominant, you know, starting of how can I serve you going to the, the senior pastor? Do you, do you have any other thoughts there on just kind of, pastoral relationships there between the senior pastor to the youth worker or vice versa? This is going to sound perhaps like I'm a dinosaur, um, <laughs> but if it's good enough for the apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Write him. Hmm. Not no, not an email, not a text. <laughs> Write him a handwritten note that says your sermon helped my soul. Hmm. It helped my wife. Thank you. Or you're under a lot right now. The session meetings seem long. I'm praying for you. Write and give to him what you would want somebody to give to you. I don't know what ministry is like for you, but I get, I, now that I'm not lead pastor, they've stopped coming, but I get unsigned letters. Mm. And they're not pleasant. Mm -hmm. To get a signed letter that's encouraging, I bet I'll keep them. I bet I'll keep them. They don't have to be long, but they have to be real. Don't flatter, but, but be honest and, and support and help. Um, I, uh, I think you'd give them a great gift if you did that with regularity. Hmm. Well, and as you've already referenced Carl Calbercamp, I'll just say, I mean, working under him for, for 12 years, I honestly, can I remember how many, signed letters I've gotten from him. Um, so I don't know if that's something that's modeled, but it is dinosaur or not. <laughs> it's, it's a helpful practice um, for sure. Did that's, you, did you keep them? I did. I, I did. I've got some in books that he's given me and um, Bibles and all that. So yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a good I, word. I, um, I, I can't, I started a, a, a study here called the dead theologian society. And our motto is you have to be dead to be read. And <laughs> we're reading all the banner of truth, um, all the paperbacks. And, but the first one we read, we read because of Carl. Hmm. He gave me the lectures of Martin Luther on Galatians with a handwritten note in the front. 
and I read them, and you can almost hear Luther shouting when you read them. Mm. And so our first book that we read, and we've been going now for quite a while, the first book we read was Martin Luther's Lectures on Galatians, and it began with a letter in the um, flyleaf that Carl had written to me. Mm. And um, I, I do have to say, his penmanship is pretty phenomenal as well. <laughs> it really is phenomenal. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, most people would struggle to read any letters that I, I hand wrote, but <laughs> got a long way to go there on my penmanship. But that's no, that's a that's a good word. Um, earlier, you referenced uh, going and seeing your your grandchildren, and so kind of shifting to uh, parent perspective here uh, in in ministry. Just speak to to youth workers as a father now, as a as a grandfather. Um, what are some thoughts you'd love? to impart to, to youth workers, to give them some perspective from the parents' point of view in ministry? Um, I remember Lynn Teague, uh, who was youth pastor here for quite a few years, talking about triangulation. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, um, that in navigation you need three points in ancient seafaring navigation with the sextant. I'd never heard that. And he said, you have God, the parents, and young men and women need one more reference point and to see yourself as the third reference point without ever factoring out the importance of your closeness to God and your closeness with the parents, your accessibility, your vulnerability, your willingness to hear from them. Will they always be right? No. Will they often overreact? Yes. Will they be scared for their kids? Yes. But they need to know they have your ear. And they need to know they have your heart. They need to know you are really with them. And having a parent's advisory board, so you know you're really you're really hearing. And am I hearing? Um, and do do they know that I am accessible to them? And when they're critical, um, one of the things I started practicing early on in youth ministry—that was what I did first. I'm fond of saying I still feel like a youth pastor trapped in a pastor's body. I just, I, sometimes he gets out of this 67 year old body. Um, but I, I wanted, I wanted to know what I was doing wrong and what I was doing right. So I developed this when that would get criticism. I had this standard answer. You may be right. May I pray and get back to you? So I wasn't immediately frightened and cowering in front of the criticism, um, nor was I uh, adverse and rejecting it. I immediately knew I can't handle it on first hit. It just throws me. Mm -hmm. And so if I can say with reverence, I, I thank you. Can I, can I take some time and pray and get back to you? Now, you can't do that if you're not going to get back. <laughs> but when a parent said, I can't believe you didn't, or I can't believe you did, or how could you? Look, you may be right. Let me hear you. Let me take notes, and then let me get back to you. Hmm. And then to pray, and I would often go sit down with my wife and say, help me think of this. Help me think this through. And then prepare, say, all right, this is accurate. This is a little overstated. Um, and then get back and say, Here, here's my response. And I began to find that parents' trust went up. And in this day and age where there's sexual abuse taking place in scary places, 
They really need to know I am on their team. Mm -hmm. They need to know that I have a child protection policy and how I'm thinking about that and, and what I'm doing to make sure that their children are protected. And they need to have full access to me. Um, I almost have to see myself as just a little family with a little F. Everybody else in their family is a big F. I'm a little mm -hmm. F, but they got to know that I am on their side. And so being willing to receive, I, I used the phrase when they criticize me, I got to kiss the blade and pull it in <laughs> and not push it away and say, mm -hmm. I, need, I need to hear from this. I really do. Those are things that come to mind. Yeah. That's so good. And I wish I would have known that answer <laughs> sooner. Uh, that's, that's some good advice there. Uh, you know, I'm thinking too, just kind of referencing earlier, just the frenetic pace of the ministry and how we can kind of just, you know, continue to be task oriented. And I think of, you know, as you said, and I agree completely uh, for parents to know that we're for them and that we're accessible. I also can hear some youth workers listening to this thinking, okay, great. Now this is something else I need to kind of add to my list. And of course, what we need to be partnering with the parents, I'm not saying we, we don't need to by any means. That's vital in youth ministry. But, but what's some advice there of just kind of cautioning youth workers to just think, okay, this is one more thing to kind of add to their frenetic pace to be accessible, yet also being, you know, unaccessible at times and being at home and resting and being with family or if they're single, just still resting. What, what are some thoughts there? Um, I've, I've just, I've found that using my mealtime um, for lunches, especially when you're youth pastor, you're many are at schools or meeting with students uh, on their turf, but to start to alternate it and say at least once a week, twice a week, I'm going to ask to meet with the dad or a dad and mom mm -hmm. and say, I have no agenda other than I've just come so that you and I can be with one another. I'm with kids the other three days, the other four days, the other six days, and just cycling through the parents and telling them that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, there's 52 weeks a year. There's X amount of families in the youth group. So no, I'm going to get to you at least that time and I'm going to keep doing that. And then I'll start again so that I make it part of my work day and don't tack it on. But mm -hmm. start to realize my exposure to the parents is as important as it is to the kid. Amen. And, and that can help having an advisory team again, to start to have to, if you're developing youth leaders, to meet with your advisory team during a Sunday school once a month. So your leadership team that you're building of other volunteers, you teach Sunday school, I'm gonna meet with the parents advisory team. And we're all gonna gather in this portion of the church and there's donuts and coffee and we're gonna have a meeting and I'm gonna find out how they're doing. So you've not added another meeting, you've mm -hmm. simply substituted it. And you're also working yourself out of one job on Sunday school that you're starting to get others in. You may have a very gifted adult, um, a, a, t a dad or a mom who can really teach or a duo who could really teach. Put them in and then say, I'm going to meet with the rest of the parents and start to substitute meetings instead of add. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Well, I was wanting to shift us to, to some discussion on marriage, but any other thoughts there before we leave this kind of parents perspective that comes to mind? 
Um, and my wife and I did this as far back as I can remember. And we took it into being lead when we became lead pastor. We would open our home at Christmas and just have a drop in. And Barb would cook and we would invite the students, the parents, come to our house and just sit in our house. Um, Jesus did a lot of important things over meals. And it was very interesting that when we moved here, um, I was told by an older pastor, one of the founding fathers of our denomination, Gordon Reed, I'd never been pastor of a larger church. Gordon said, um, I want you to visit every member of that church. I went, Gordon, I, that's, that's going to take me years <laughs> if I did it every day. And he said, I don't care. You need to be in every one of those homes. So I came home and told that to Barb. And she said, well, let's just keep doing what we've done with younger people. I went, what, do, what, what are you saying? She said, let's have them at our house. I went, Barb, that's, that's over a thousand people. <laughs> she cooked for three months with her mom and my daughter. And we, we froze sausage balls all over the mountain. <laughs> and then we invited everybody to come to the house in sections by alphabet. We started Friday night and then went through Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday late afternoon, evening, Sunday afternoon and evening. And you went, if you were from, if your last name was from A to C, you came at this time. From D to F, you came at this time. And we worked our way through the whole alphabet. In one weekend, we had 750 people in our home. Wow. And fed them all. I would suggest having times when you just kind of throw wide your home and say to the parents on, on our turf, come in. Hmm. And you can go through our house, have your family albums out, see how you live with your children, and live openly like that. Um, I think when we did it here, um, some people have said to us we'd, they'd never been in a pastor's home. Hmm. And um, that was kind of a big deal. I was like, wow, that's, that's <laughs> a scary thought. Hmm. Um, so just invite them in. That's That's phenomenal. Yeah, that's some... Some great advice. Well, I, I know um, uh, we're going to be wrapping this up before too long, but I wanted to talk a little bit about marriage. Mm. Um, and I know there are many listeners out there who are familiar with you and, and your marriage to um, Barbara. And how long have y'all been married now? Whew, it's just... Sorry, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, it's 44 years. I'm just... Wow. It makes me so thankful that um, I just... It's hard to believe. I've known her for over half a century. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I want to ask just, you know, what have been some of the biggest challenges on your marriage while serving in ministry? And again, those that are, that you're comfortable with sharing, uh, not getting into the, the nitty gritty, but, you know, as you share that, maybe share just a little bit about um, your story and the, the early years of your, your marriage and the accident that you went through. Again, I know many are familiar, but there are those who, who are not. So just share a little bit about that and then some of those biggest challenges you have faced, which I guess right there from the outset, having some challenges. Well, you know, it's interesting that both of us would say, um, since you spoke about 
the incident early in our marriage. Two months after we were married, I crushed both my hands in an industrial accident, and I had to hold them over my head for one year. So Barb had to dress me, bathe me, feed me, do all my bathroom habits, everything for one year. And so I'm fond of saying, she said for better or for worse, mm. and she got the worst within two months. But back to my first comment, both of us would say that first year of that was frankly easier than the next two, three, or four. Wow. Because then we started dealing with the profoundly relationally complex blind spots in both of us. And it, it was terrifying, uh, more to me than to her. She'd grown up in a home where trust was very valuable and very accessible. And I grew up in a double alcoholic home. And, and so trust was not something that was high on the scale of values in our home. And I really didn't learn it. And so I really lived with a lot of relational distance that was very confusing to Barb. If you give me a lie detector test and say, do you love your wife? I would have said yes, and I believe I would have passed. But my understanding of vulnerability and honesty and letting her in was abysmal. And it took all the way, I don't know how many years before she said, you know, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm afraid of. You can help everybody else but me. Um, and yet I see you on your knees. I listen to your sermons. I, I, I see all that, but you really do not know who I am. And I was looking at her like a deer in the headlights, like, what are you talking about? And she said, you don't. And um, you keep your distance from me. And I can't get in. And it started to break my heart. So we, we started working with a ruling elder. Here would be the thing that I would say. I, I, I would say to people, you find somebody who's known Jesus better than the two of you, mm. a couple or an individual, and you deputize them to hunt your property and to jump the fence, even if you put up a no trespassing sign, <laughs> and get on your land and show you where you're blind to your sin or blind to the relational confusion that you have and help you see it. Because after we started meeting with a ruling elder, and he really helped us, his name was Glenn Zepfel. Mm -hmm. And Carl and I were working together at this time, and Barb would confide in Carl just how blind I was. Um, she, I, I asked her, what's it like to be married to me? And she remembers it took her three months to get the courage to answer that question. I remember um, that it took her six months. Mm -hmm. But here's her exact words because of how blind I was. I would have never divorced you because Jesus said not to. But if you had died, my life would have been much easier. Mm. When I heard those words, with Glenn Zepfel sitting in the room, I told Barb, I dedicate the rest of my life to addressing that more than any other issue other than my walk with Christ. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more important than that. I am, I will repent and work at that. And I've tried to keep that promise for these 44 years, ever since she told me that, which was about 15 in. Mm -hmm. So she had resigned herself to living in a heartless, distant, relationship with me 
And when she and I started meeting with Glenn, he disemboweled me. Um, he really did. He, I'm still in ministry because of Glenn Zeppel. Hmm. And he showed me how confused I was and that I did not know how to relate profoundly and deeply. And then he made me go to my elders and confess. Again, Carl was there when I did this. He was in the room when I did it. And I went to my elders and I said, um, I don't think you can afford to have a pastor as broken as me. Mm. And I, I basically I was saying, I think you probably need to let me go. And one of the men said, are you breaking because you've been caught in sin or because you're finally realizing what a sinner you are? That's a brilliant question. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't have a woman on the side. I'm not living a double life. I'm not doing things in secret. But my wife has told me I barely know who she is. Now, that's hardly being beyond reproach, guys. Mm -hmm. Hardly. And I'm not sure I know who I am. And this is what the guy said after I said that. He said, it sounds like God is breaking you. So we're going to pray it gets worse. Mm. <laughs> if God's burning you, we're going to pray he burns you white hot. Mm. I fell out of the chair and my head hit the desk. And they gathered around me and put their hands on my shoulders and started praying for me. And they gave me a sabbatical, my first one. And Carl led the church while I went and met with all my heroes mm. and faced what was wrong with me. And I went and met with R.C. and Vesta. <laughs> I remember saying to R.C., I said, I mean, do you ever wake up, R.C., and just say, I can't do this? Like, I... I said, R.C., the whole reform world is looking at you, man. Do you ever just panic and go, I'm just a man. And, and Vest is going like this. <laughs> and R.C. lightheartedly, but not too lightheartedly, said, yeah, a little, but I, that really won't happen too much until John Gerstner dies. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, you know, to talk with men that I revered so much and to hear them admit, I can't do this. And to start to say, I'm home because I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And I learned that the feel of faith is not strength. The feel of faith is dependent weakness. I learned that listening to R.C., John Gerstner, James Montgomery Boyce, Gordon MacDonald. And I started to live that way with my wife. So in marriage, deputize someone to jump your fence and hunt your property. And if you're living out of a fake strength, quit it. Mm. Repent and realize it's weakness that's dependent on Jesus. Is that any help? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just that imagery of somebody being able to hunt your property, to jump your fence, to get into your business. Um, yeah, I mean, that is vitally important to have someone. And just as you said, someone who's 
loved Jesus longer than you and has been around um, to, to see your blind spots. I mean, that is so important. I, and I don't want to leave this question without, you know, addressing those who are single in ministry, mm-hmm. um, just as you're, you're dealing with those, uh, you know, who are in ministry, not married mm-hmm. yet. And there, you know, could be an aspect of loneliness that's even more um, uh, felt there. So maybe some advice there before we. Oh, I, I'm, this is the advice from my single son. My second son is single. And he just, he made the comment to me, he said, you know, dad, most of my free time is looking for cultivating and maintaining community. He said, you have your community. It's called mom. (laughs) And you take her with you everywhere. He said, I got to find it, cultivate it and maintain it (laughs) for my own well-being." And he learned early that he actually had better community with married couples than he did with single men. And so he started befriending couples and basically saying, look, you get a free babysitter. All I want to do is be a part of your family. And several of them actually created, they call them Novi's room, where my son can just come when he said, look, he's a little lonely. Can I just come and spend a night? Mm. And come on. And their kids are like, Novi's here, Novi's here. (laughs) And he has developed community by becoming friends with couples who are mature in Christ and have kids. That means the world to him. I would encourage that to pursue friends with married couples, not just other singles and watch the benefit as I know I'm pushing the Bible verse here, but that God will put you in families and you need that. You you really need that. And they need you. Amen. And, and those little kids, when you come through the door and they're laughing and calling your name, you watch and see how that refreshes your soul. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. I just think, you know, now what's going on in the co- culture with the coronavirus of just okay. those who are single in our congregations and the isolation there. So we need to definitely be sensitive to this reality and, and think of creative ways in which, uh, we can get together, maybe breaking some of the rules of the the, the social distancing. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, we need to be thinking about that. Well, look, I, I know we need to close out because we're we're getting to time. Do, do you have a final encouragement that you would mm-hmm. like to give? Some biblical truths that you've uh, just that, that have fed your soul uh, while, while you've been serving in ministry. One of those to just leave us with. Um, when you said that, a. Uh an incident came to mind. I had gone to um, Minsk, Belarus, and I was meeting with a man named Constantine, who had uh, been in prison for his faith um, by, um, he just fought World War II and won, and when he came home, Stalin put him in a uh, coal mining for four years, basically slave labor for four years, because he was a Christian. Uh, he got out, he planted a church, and I visited the church and met the people, and it was, he is now an older man, and um, I met him for the first time, and I sat down, and I felt like I was with the Apostle John, and uh, I couldn't speak his language, and I was tearing up looking at him, and he's looking at me like, what's wrong with this man? I just <laughs> felt like I was on holy ground, and I said, Constantine, you don't know me. I don't know you. I don't know if I'm going to see you again before heaven. Talk to me like you've known me your whole life. 
what is what would you say to someone you know i'm coming from the west you know how far we are from where you are here um where you've lived and uh what, what would you say and i got ready i'm looking at my translator and he just said in russian just this brief little <laughs> and i was like i looked at the translator like that's it and i said what do you say what do you say and he said know jesus better hmm. and then i looked at him and i said in english that's it <laughs> and the translator said it in russian to him and constantine just shrugged and went <laughs> like there's anything else <laughs> and i would say that hmm. no the second adam better than you know the first mm. be more like the second adam rather than the first everything in your life is designed with that one goal that before you close your eyes the last time you'll be more like the second adam mm. know him well know him very very well mm. Well, that is an excellent uh, word to end on for sure. Um, Joe, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out to, to come on this podcast to share uh, the wisdom that God, by His grace, has given to you. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for even wanting to talk. I don't feel like this will be worth anybody's time, but thanks. <laughs> no, absolutely. Thank you. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without